Welcome to another episode of Hawkett Podcast. Today I have watercolor painter, illustrator, and printmaker Robbie Marks. How's it going? Going great. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. So tell us about your artist background you have, because your paintings you do are like amazing. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Um, pretty much since I popped out, man, I've been making art. Um, you know, um, my mom and, you know, when I was in preschool and kindergarten, she used to show it off to her friends. And um, then just growing up, um, it's something I've always consistently done. Um, and I ended up going and uh, getting a degree in fine art um, and drawing and uh, printmaking. Um, and then I have some master's classes in uh, illuminated manuscripts. And um, since then, I got my degree, I want to say, around 2000. So we're looking at 23 years ago. Um, and I've just been doing art since then. Um, kind of moved up to New Hampshire and kind of live a little bit of a life as a hermit in the winters. And then in the summers, I go out and travel around and show my wares and sell art and kind of live that kind of bag vagabond kind of hobo lifestyle, you know. Um, it's yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the whole. <laughs> so how, what's the process like when you create an artwork for someone? It's, um, well, generally, you know, um, depends on what it's for. Um, if it's for a music event or if it's for a product line or if it's, you know, sometimes I just do custom pieces for individuals, you know, and just do a nice illustration and, um, sometimes text, sometimes no text, but generally, you know, it starts out, um, kind of, uh, talking to the person and getting a feel for, you know, what they're really looking for and then kind of developing that idea into a sketch. And so I'll generally sketch it out. And sometimes, you know, um, a lot of people are really happy with the first sketch. Um, some of the bands I've worked with, you know, I just finished up a, a big contract. I've been going back and forth with with a big band now for about eight months on a single piece. So, you know, it just depends on on uh, the customer, um, what the piece is for. Um, but I'll then I'll take that sketch. Um, once we come to an agreed point on, you know, what the sketch um, is as far as because you figure the sketch is the foundation it's a, it's these essentially the base of the piece so that's a lot of times where i spend most of the time really refining the details and you know get, getting a nice fluid quality about it um <clears throat> and then once um the sketch is agreed upon um then i'll generate and even in my own work you know when i'm working for myself i'll do the sketch and then i move into the black line phase where i'll essentially and again depending on what it's for sometimes i'll do a hand inked piece and and really do it like a nice you know illustration um and other times um the speed at which something needs to be done um i'll just drop it in the computer and develop it digitally you know and and then through the course of that, um, I'll take the black line. And then um, at that point, it's almost like as far as my process go, um, it's almost like, um, you know, I just kind of let it happen and I kind of have a process. And generally at the point where I start working color, 
um, I'll throw a book on and just listen to a book. And, you know, some pieces I, I'll make it through a couple books, you know. Um, but, yeah, and then generally that'll be the finished piece. And, um, you know, then I then depending on if you're going to print it um, like offset press or I'm working on a screen press right now on a custom piece I did for one individual. Um, and I've got a, a festival poster I'm doing as a screen print as well. Um, you know, and then you've got the options of stickers and, you know, just T-shirts and posters and just anything that we can, you know, um, I do hats uh, on occasion. A um, couple hats a year for different, you know. Um, lately, it's been a lot of cannabis companies that I've been working for. Um, but the music industry is still, you know, pretty, pretty fluid. So it's, uh, yeah, it keeps me busy. So, That's good. Yeah. So if you would say it takes you about like a month or two to create like everything for like a for a, a person that wants to work from you. Yeah, generally, um, usually it's a it's a couple week process, um, and then depending on well, and you know sometimes life interferes, things come up. You know, like right now, I'm moving my daughter out of her apartment, and you know she just dropped the transmission out of her car. So you know sometimes life <clears throat> gets in the way, um, but generally I try to wrap projects up in two to three weeks. You know, yeah. So what are your major strengths and weaknesses as an artist? Major restraints um, are probably the physical aspects of life. Um, and just just um, the translation process from the vision you have into your mind um, into the actual end product as far as, it, you know, um, sometimes it translates well and sometimes you know, it's a little harder to, to translate. Um, those are probably the weaknesses. What was the other part of that question? The strengths and weaknesses. I think you answered both of them. Yeah, the, the strengths, I would say, um, is it allows me to um, really just focus in and be myself and kind of live in my own space. I mean, as far as the art itself, it's a process. So, you know, I mean... You have the contemplation aspect of it, um, and then you have the physical like work that you have to put in to to bring something into being, you know. So and and you know those both have strengths and weaknesses um, on both sides of the coin, as with everything, you know. Mm -hmm. So, how would you describe your artistic style to someone? Huh. Um. 50s surf art mixed with Saturday morning cartoons a little bit. Um, I do do uh, some surreal like aspects. Um, I have worked photorealistic um, as far as doing a lot of uh, cross hatching and stippling and stuff like that with pen and ink work. Um, but I find that the most fun um, that I have with the art is to really just kind of let it be its own abstraction and kind of just like let it be what flows out of me you know I try not to think about it a lot other than the fact I'm trying to create something that is uh timeless and beautiful you know those are like the two main qualifying characteristics has there ever been a time where you went back you were working you're helping a customer out and you went back to the design they asked you did you ever go back and change something 
Oh, do you feel like it wasn't like not not that great? Yeah, the changes are part of the process. Um, you know, it's um, but yeah, it's as far as the digital substrate, it's a lot easier to go back and make changes than if you physically do a watercolor piece or a pen and ink piece. You know, um, once you get into that digital realm, I mean, it is virtual, so you're kind of playing in this uh, etheric realm where. You know, you can subtract and add and, and just play with and morph and you don't have to really. So, yeah, but changes um, when I was younger in my younger days, you know, because I've been doing this for 30, 35 years almost now. Um, but when I was in my younger days, when somebody would want changes, you know, I would I would you know be like okay yeah we can make and then i get off the phone i'll be like ah but but honestly after this many years um i uh, i expect it and in ways i think what it really does is it's kind of the hammering out process um almost like when you're forging something you know as far as metal work or um you're you're basically um hammering it into its truest refined form um and and i find that a lot of times those changes do really make a piece better you know mm -hmm. so it's expected so what is your favorite and least favorite aspect of a being a professional artist my favorite aspect is i'm on my own schedule um i basically uh stay up and and do what i do at night until i get tired um, when I go to tired, I sleep until I'm not tired. Um, I don't wake up to an alarm, um, you know. And and then as far as uh, fluidity and movement, um, you know, I was just down in Florida like a week and a half ago, two weeks. And, you know, I can just literally pick up and go anywhere and do anything, anytime. Um, as far as the constraints, um, if you don't do the work, then you don't get paid. So as an independent, you know, um, subcon or a contractor, um, basically, you know, I have to maintain a schedule, a regular schedule of working. So, you know, but, but the work that I do is, is generally work that I love, but at the same time, anytime that you're required to do anything with regularity, it, you know, it is a job. So that as far as the thing that I love becoming a job, um, that's probably the worst constraint, you know, but all those other things far outweigh that in regard to the uh, freedom of, you know, being able to just kind of uh, live my life without the worry of uh, time, you know? Mm. Yeah. So you're like, being, you're like being your own boss because you don't have anyone higher up that you have to work for you. You're your own person and you can do what you want at your own time. Yes. Well, but I do have a boss, you know, my wife. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know, it's, we've been together going on. Um, we've been married almost 24 years and we've been together almost 30 years. And again, it's like the changes when you're, when you're working on a piece of art, and how it refines it and makes it better. I think that, you know, my wife kind of cross-checking me, grounding me out at times. Because, you know, she says I'm a complete space case, you know. Um, but it's like those things um, actually contribute 
um, even though they may seemingly be an assault sometimes on me, um, I think in the long run, again, they refine the the being and and make things smoother, better, easier, um, even though, you know, we we oftentimes resist. So, yeah. So how do you come how do you overcome creative block? Yeah, at this point, um, it's, you know, so many images are flowing through my head. Um, it's not even something that, um, like, literally, I have I have just so many things that I want to work on. Um, and then a lot of times people, you know, will hire me, like, if it's a show poster or, like, a, in the cannabis industry. And I do have 100% creative freedom in a lot of these cases. So a lot of times the art that I'm actually doing is stuff that, that you know, is in my mind to work on. Um, there was, like, when I was younger, um, I used to go in what I called my trans-dimensional meditation chamber. And basically I would just go take a shower, you know, in the dark and uh, kind of like let images roll through my mind and kind of like, you know, things will congeal and cohese and become. And um, but it, at this point, you know, when I talk to a client um, to work on a custom piece, pretty much in that initial conversation um, where we're discussing you know, direction and feel and color schemes. Um, I kind of like already, I, I envision it in my head at that point, you know? So it's just, uh, it's I, not something I ever even worry about, you know? So has there been ever a time where you completed a whole piece for a client and they didn't like it? Then what did you do after that? Yes, that has happened a few times. Um, generally, you know, um, it's a matter of going back and working it, working it over again. So, you know, um, but I've had several bigger bands, um, that, you know, um, have had pretty intensive tour schedules and, um, we've, you know, um, gone through a number of sketches, um, finished a piece and, and it just wasn't. And that's the other thing. Sometimes this, this piece that I just finished up, um, that we've been going back and forth for eight months on, um, you know, they actually have to send it overseas. Um, and then there's a board that basically, you know, meets around their product and merchandising. And so you kind of have to deal with multiple people sometimes, you know, as far as um, constantly making minor adjust, you know, adjustments to, ref again, back to refining it into, you know, it's, it's pure form, almost like alchemy, like metalworking, you know. So from all the artwork you've done for your clients, which, which one has been your favorite so far? Oh, you really love yeah, that's hard to say because um, in a lot of cases, I really don't think about my past art. Um, I'm really kind of focused on constantly progressing and making new things. And when I do go back and look through my portfolio, um, I oftentimes see many things that I forgot I even did, you know? So it's, it's, it, to me, it's more about the process of creation than it is about, um, but I do, I will say that I have pieces that um, I haven't finished that I pull out and work on for a month here, a month there, you know, every year. And I, who knows if they'll ever get finished, you know? Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I see it really as kind of an amorphous function as far as it's kind of, 
this this uh it's like in the air and i kind of have to draw it in and and make something cohesive and whole out of it um but once i do that um then generally i'm already in the process of doing that again so like you know uh people have mentioned that i should go through and and put a bunch of sketches up you know of my uh of my miscellaneous past pieces just because i literally i've just cleaned out the closet because i was looking for an old print somebody wanted and um i've got like a stack of sketches like a hip high man you know it's like and they're just kind of stuck in a flat file you know like um it's uh i don't know but that's the whole thing man the other thing is I would like to be able to have more of that stuff online and available to people for them to view, but I'm really just caught up in trying to, you know, keep up with, with, you know, all the stuff that I've got going on in my life professionally and, you know, um, privately. So, yeah. Did you, did you ever think about creating like a coloring book for like kids with your artwork? Yeah, I've actually, um, I have all the, I went through and I got um, a good hundred ink pieces that I did out from various show posters, um, different stuff that I can, and it's already in black and white. Um, and I was talking to the company that makes the coloring books and then we left for last summer and like it kind of fell to the wayside so it's something that's been thought about but it's just not something that's reached fruition. So now, how do you balance your time in, in the studio with other commitments, like such as family? Generally, um, unless there's something going on, I'm sitting and working. So I will get up in the morning and I'll do my household chores and, you know, check the chickens and whatnot. And then um, I'll sit down and basically just focus on art. Um, and then when my wife comes home or my daughter comes home, um, then I will generally, that's my break time. And I kind of turn off my phone and I kind of make myself unavailable. And I just spend that time with my family. And then, um, as soon as they go to bed, then I'm generally getting back to work and, you know, and I'm just listening to different podcasts, listening to books, um, and, and just making stuff that's, you know, at, at least during the the months where I'm at home, you know, we're we're actually tooling up to uh, get out on the road here for for a few months. Um, like I said, I just went down to Florida, and you saw I picked up that that cargo van, and we're in the process of outfitting that for a camp, little camper van for the summer. So yeah. So what are some of your goals with your art business this year? Um, just keep making. Just keep producing um you know it's uh i mean you look at the history of a lot of artists and um as they get older it's harder and harder for them to be productive you know health issues take prominence um like monet when monet you know was on his deathbed um he actually had arthritis so bad in his fingers he could no longer paint so he basically just sat with uh with scissors and cray paper and made collages, you know, it's, it's, it's the, I think with the artist, it's this, this inherent need to create, to be creative, 
to be, you know, in that state of, and it is a meditative um, state that that is kind of addictive, I will admit, um, because you're you're literally in this state of hyper focus, and and you're watching this thing that you've dreamed up, kind of being manifested in front of you, you know. So to me, it's just um, continue to create, continue to you know to be productive and and uh, see what I can get done before before I have to check out, you know. Mm-hmm. So speaking of uh, artists, did you have anyone that inspired you to get into this craft in the first place? Mm. I mean, growing up, you know, um, I was always into the Saturday morning cartoons and um, kind of the the weekend, you know, funny papers. I would always sit and I would get the the comic strips, you know, on the Sunday papers and I would sit and I would, you know, kind of uh, – copy all the different cartoons you know and um then i i kind of got into like um some asian kind of kung fu stuff and like some big like um corvettes that were like jacked up with big truck tires on them and i was like just drawing all this crazy stuff as a kid and um you know uh, but as far as inspiration later in life um, you know, you have, uh, Salvador Dali is still a pretty major influence. Um, Van Gogh, um, let's see, there's, uh, uh, Vermeer is a favorite of mine. Um, it's, yeah, just the whole line of surrealists. Um, I get into a lot of abstract impressionism, um, cubism, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, I, I lose a little interest on some levels. Um, but I really got into the impressionist works there for a while. Um, at the museum of Chicago, if you go there, they have the big painting of, uh, the scene where everybody they're like in Victorian outfits. I can't even remember who the artist is, but it's all just dots of different colors of paint. And for a while I was really getting into doing like abstract expressionism. Um, and then at a certain point, um in my teens i was uh djing a lot of house parties and stuff like that and really kind of in the music scene and um a friend of mine had to go pick up his girlfriend at a grateful dead show and so i drove him out there and he paid for gas it was like a 30 hour drive almost and he paid for gas we got out there he got me a ticket and i kind of went in and kind of saw that whole scene and that kind of bohemian lifestyle and just how people were selling art like out on the lot at the shows and i was like i was like i think i might try this so i took a piece of art out and the very first um the very first time i took art out to sell it i completely sold out of what i had i had like 70 prints and um you know, and I was like, well, I think that, that this might be what I'm doing. So I basically, you know, um, kind of got into the psychedelic art as an inspiration, um, getting into like Rick Griffin, like the early surf art, getting into like Stanley Mouse, um, getting into, you know, Peter Max and just a lot of these different kind of uh, um, alternative thinking artists, you know. Um, and kind of just been riding that wave for the past 30 years, you know? So now what was one topic or event that made you question the world we live in now? Oh, I would say probably 
around 9-11. Um, Cause I was kind of, you know, I had kind of heard about Ruby Ridge and um, I was living down um, around Oklahoma city um, and, and little rock, um, you know, when Oklahoma city happened. And so I kind of, that was, you know, in, in the mindset and I kind of looked into, you know, Timothy McVeigh a little bit. And then I was getting more politically active and interested. I was already kind of a protest kid and I was kind of going to things like uh, against like the meat industry and against, you know, different uh, corporations that kind of, you know, were harming people. And um, the more I looked at politics, the more um, corruption I saw. And then when 9-11 happened, um, you know, with all the different storylines and all the different ways that people looked at it and just, you know, and I just thought that something wasn't right, you know. So since, I mean, I've always kind of been an information junkie. And so, you know, kind of watching the world morph, um, you know, because essentially, you know, I was running around, you know, before we had the the you know, phones in our pockets, you know, I was running around the country, you know, just with a map and a car and, you know, um, and then to see the slow morphing and how the technological aspects, you know, have entered in and slowly become more and more like panopticon in regard to, you know, us trying to make a self edit, um, trying to keep us like maybe, you know, in our place as the plebs, you know, it's uh, so I really am um, liberty oriented as much as I move around and go see, you know, and, um, and, you know, for years, even coming into California, man, I, I had a problem with the checkpoints when they would take your fruit, you know, it's like, just so I've always had this kind of anti disestablishmentarianism kind of attitude, you know, and I've, and, you know, my, my wife, you know, um, she's, it's like, I'm a bit of an anarchist and I'm a bit of a, uh, libertarian. Um, but I don't agree with a lot of what libertarians agree with. Um, I'm more, I'm more in the realm of liberty in regard to a thought form. Um, you know, but it's, uh, my wife says, you know, well, because she's like a New England liberal, you know, but she says, yeah, you're like all the anarchists are like house cats. They just don't realize that, you know, all the dependent systems that that incorporate and need to be interlinked for everything to work, you know. Um, and, and I do agree. We are all attached. And but at the same time, we should have our liberty. We should have our ability to, to speak freely, to talk about things openly, you know, without this, uh, this big brother um, censorship. So it's kind of been a long process of, of turning into this, uh, you know, um, whatever I am now, you know. <laughs> so why do you think people are so afraid to speak freely nowadays? Yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid that they're going to get shut off. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, when, when you really get into a lot of this stuff, um, we've been channeled into and corralled into these, um, paddocks, essentially like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, uh, discord, like, um, and, you know, even, even going back to MySpace and, you know, even the, uh, chat rooms that were before MySpace, you know, people generally, you know, and it's become almost the, the quote unquote town square, you know, where, 
um, and, and if you get into um, social media in general, um, it's it's been funded by intelligence, which is funded by tax dollars. So at its essential base, it should be part of the commons. It should be part of everyone's to use freely without fear of as long as you're, you know, the old libertarian idea, you know, your rights end where my nose begins. So as long as you're not doing something to encroach or to harm or to assault someone else, then you should freely be able to do whatever you want to do. Um, but with the way that the technocracy has manipulated everyone into these social media streams, um, we're at the point now where um, the threat of being shut off, um, you know, in regard to the panopticon, the idea is that if you know they're always watching, you will self-edit, that you will be more reserved that you will, you know, and in some ways, um, I think that the crowd does that on its own because if someone, you know, if, if you've got someone going around hurting a bunch of people and the police don't take care of it, um, you oftentimes have the rise of vigilantes, you know? So I think that the natural ecosystem, um, will take care of itself. And as far as the battle of, you know, uh, information warfare, you know, um, I think that um, steel sharpens steel. So if, if people openly debate and talk about these ideas, and I'm, I'm always willing to change my mind, you know, it's, but the thing is, we need to have open and free conversation. And, and on top of that, it needs to be, um, you, you need to have knowledge of these subjects. You need to investigate, you know, and, and the media that we have now um, is essentially bought and sold. So you have them projecting what they want people to think. Um, and, you know, we see much like the, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, how that's starting to begin to come out as a factual story in the eyes of the, the mass media, you know, um, and, and that just it, it's nothing new. It's just the most recent, you know in regard, you know, because what was Watergate really all about? You know, what was Ruby Ridge all about? What was, you know, you just, the further back you go, you know, even the newspapers, you know, back in the 20s, you got the New York Times editor coming out and saying, you know, we proudly, proudly stand with the globalists, you know, to basically project what, what they see as the future. And, you know, so the, the media, I think, you know, um, is an essential part of the propaganda. Um, like when Stalin, you know, during the revolution in, in Russia, they said that Stalin missed the revolution, but Stalin was actually at Pravda reassembling the presses so that he could print newspapers to spread the propaganda and the story that they wanted to, in, in regard to the, the precipitated narrative. So, you know, um, when people don't realize they're in a narrative, um, when people are paddocked into these um, social media streams where they can be, you know, shut down, you know, Facebook jail or, you know, just completely kicked off a platform. I mean, when have you ever heard of, you know, the, the most potentially, you know, I'm not a fan of any political power, but potentially the most, you know, the most superior political power on the planet, as they always, you know, say the president of the United States is getting kicked off Twitter. You know, what kind of, what kind of, uh, 
um, dialectic is that? You know, um, how are they playing with people's sense of you know sensibilities in in regard to the information war? You know, um, it's it and much like Alex Jones, you know, when he was in um, a scanner darkly, you know, um, and they show him coming out with a bullhorn and the the uh, van pulls out and they arrest him, you know, is that predictive programming? Are they telling us what they were going to do with Alex Jones way, way, way back then? You know, these these questions, I think, are relevant. Um, but at the same time, you have to realize that this is all storytelling. This is all, you know, um, uh, it's a created mind storm that they're projecting into us. You know, whereas if you actually go out the door and you turn your phone off and you go and you walk into the woods and you listen to the wind and you hear the birds and, you know, and, and maybe a deer will walk by or a moose or a bear, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's like, it's like um, what the world really is and, and what the information sector has created. Um, I think they're, they're basically um, shutting down those people that, that want to f speak freely in order to create a narrative to direct the, the mass mind of the populace towards the end goal of some utopian philosophy, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. I noticed something <laughs> like Stalin, Hitler, we're pretty much doing everything they did back in their day with the censoring and book burning, all that yeah. stuff. We're yep. literally doing, doing that now. Now. Yeah. And well, and at the same time, they're editing the history. They're removing the physical books. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a point I remember had to be about 2004, 2005. It was a couple of years after, um, maybe it was 2003 around in there. It's a couple of years after 9-11. Um, but I was, you know, up, we had just moved up here in the woods and we had the satellite internet, you know, before they had run um, the cable lines out here. And um, I was reading the New York Times, some story about something. And at the time, the they had a refresh rate where like every eight or ten seconds the screen would just refresh on its own and as i was reading this story you know they were changing the story in front of my eyes and and i was just like you know this is orwell this is 1984 you know this is this is what um what you know the main character in the book was doing was editing the history and what did orwell say you know if you don't have a history, you don't have a future. So, you know, when, when they take the history away from us, um, it allows them to create the future for us. Mm -hmm. So now if you could change four world problems, what would that be and why? Oh, uh, first would be um, military weapon sales. Um, I think that, you know, we all should have the right to have a firearm, um, for defense, um, and to go hunting for, to supply food for our family. Um, but, but when you get into these weapons that are machines of war, um, you know, it's, uh, but it, that's just, the war has been the constant state of humankind as far back as we look into the histories. So, you know, it's like really, um, what can they use next to kill us? You know, as far as looking at like a lot of this MRNA stuff and, and the stuff that's going on now, you know, um, and, and another problem I think is um, value of trade in regard to 
um, the fundamentals of barter trade, money, and fiat. Um, we've gotten to the point now where they're, they're basically making money on the good faith of the people. Um, and it's not tethered to anything. And, you know, Donald Trump, he printed 40% of the money that was in circulation since the Federal Reserve started printing money. And Joe Biden has done the same, if not more. And so they're just continuing to devalue what the dollar is worth, you know. So I think fiat currencies um, and, and, you know, um, is another one. Um, and then I would say contract magic. Um, as far as, uh, you know, setting up all these miscellaneous things, um, to entrap us in, in certain ways. Like when you look at, um, student loans and the banks and credit cards and, you know, how people sign onto those, especially younger kids, you know, not knowing the long-term implications of what compound, you know, compound interest is. Um, and, I, I think the other thing maybe that is a really becoming a global problem, and this would be the fourth, would be the idea that um, we no longer look inside ourselves. Um, the system has created mechanisms in which we look outside of ourselves. Um, especially when you're looking at social media and you look at younger girls and how much depression is going on, you know, because um, they're seeing lives that they're envious of. Um, and so that creates a psychodrama within the mind um, that that people don't know how to process. Um, whereas, you know, you go back um, into the ancient um, philosophies and it was the idea of you know, the kingdom of heaven is within, like knowing yourself, like centering yourself and looking within and being able to focus. So I think that that inherent um, beauty of the inner self um, has to a great extent um, been systemically, um, they've tried to cut it off in regard to consumerism and commercialism. And again, back to capital um, and fiat and all these things are interrelated. You know, um, but I think those are probably, you know, my four major problems with the state of the world. Um, not that I have any answers, you know, so. So what's your opinion on religion then? Um, so growing up, I my parents were not religious at all. Um, so I grew up. Um, nobody talked about religion. You know, um, they were very. um uh, just, uh, I don't want to say atheist, um, but they weren't, you know, it just wasn't part of, of, you know, what was in my youth. Um, so as I grew older, um, at a certain point, I want to say probably when I was about 16 or 17, um, I started getting into Eastern theology and I was studying Buddhism and Hinduism and the Tao and basically, you know, looking at a lot. And then that kind of um, moved into um, study and, and with conspiracy, when you're getting into a lot of the studying of the politics, you start to also see the inflection of the church within that, you know, as far as the Vatican and, and the, the battle between the church and the crown. And, you know, so um, 
in a, in a lot of ways, I've always seen a lot of religions as corrupted, you know? Um, and then through my own course of study, um, one of the things that I studied a lot in college was, um, world religion. So I was, I was, you know, delving into, um, Middle Eastern religions. I was delving into, um, Asian religions, I was delving in, and, and you cross compare them and you, you know, analyze them. And, um, I think at this point, um, I would consider myself as almost an agnostic mystic where I believe there is something, um, and I see great amounts of mysticism and synchronicity and, and things within the world that show higher levels of beauty. Um, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And, and I almost think um, it's like, uh, to a great extent, a wagon wheel where all the spokes lead to the center. Um, and um, it's just a matter of uh, our own individual process in regard to how we can elevate our own minds and bring ourselves into a higher state of appreciation for the beauty of, of the cosmos and reality. Hmm. So what is something you learned about Asian uh, religions then? Um, Asian religions, you know, I studied um, Buddha um, and, uh, you know, getting into Siddhartha and, and the whole idea of um, all is illusion and the idea that, you know, um, it may seem real. But but essentially, it's just all burning, you know, around us and um, to kind of see the physical um, as a secondary aspect of the mental and the spiritual. Um, and then, you know, as you carry through um, into Mesopotamia, um, into, um, a, you know, a lot of these various religions, um, it's the idea of the internal. And I think at a certain point, um, like I said, they took that, that internal and moved it to the external, you know, um, and the idea of worshiping, you know, these exterior forces. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it's a debate as to, um, whether what I consider God to be, um, being all of reality cohesively, um, even parts of myself and parts of you, the physical, um, the mental, the life-giving, um, it, it has a consciousness, um, but at the same time, because of the free will, um, you know, we're left to, to do what we can within where we are, you know? So I've kind of, and, and in no way do I imply that I've created my own religion, but I look at all of these different religions and I see the similarities in them all. And, and I kind of um, maybe take that to be what might be a glimmer of truth, you know, in the whole. So. So do you believe that religion is making people, uh, do you believe that religion is a, like a cause and divide concept? Do you believe like whatever religion we like attach ourselves to, it causes a divide amongst other people because we don't agree what they what they believe regarding their own religion. Right. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's like with everything, um, movements start out small, you know, 
And it's like the, the Roman state trying to shut down Jesus and the disciples, you know, um, it's at, at a certain point in every movement that occurs, once it gets to the point where it starts to affect the populace, where people pick it up as a truism, um, I think that that also leaves that movement open to being co-opted by p more powerful, you know, um, physical moneyed forces that that will come in and use that again to direct the attention of the people involved in that movement. So, you know, it's like it's like anything um, that is based around human interaction and human hier hierarchy um, is bound to be corrupted um, just because people are corruptible. So, you know, that's, it's a fault of the human. Um, and, and it's, you know, also in a lot of cases, what gives us motivation to want to do better, you know, um, what do they say? An expert is someone who's failed, um, at every way to do something until they, they figure it out, you know? So, I mean, I think that the inherent failures within society are the natural part of the progression and the learning that we need to be able to grow and open wider and, and be better, you know? Yeah, I agree. That's I'm, I used to be religious. I'm Hindu and we, we follow Hinduism, but I've slowly backed away from our religion because I've noticed that every religion is corrupted in the inside. All these churches, temples, they're all corrupt. All right. these like, like, Church go. What are they called? Not church. The pundits in Hinduism, and then the church leaders are all like they all. All they want is the money of the people that come into the into their uh, worship place, and mm -hmm. that's all they care about. Yeah, and keeping that machine moving and mm -hmm. going, and they use altruistic means as far as you know. We want to help this group. We want to bring people to higher, you know, uh, ways of thinking, and but you know. Um, Every person involved and, you know, you look at politics and just how, you know, money has gone in. And, and if it's not the money, then it's the, the blackmail and compromise through, you know, um, operations like Midnight Climax and, and sexual blackmail. You know, it's like at a certain point, um, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, anything in the physical becomes becomes corrupted. Mm -hmm. it's uh yeah so now what genre of music do you enjoy listening to <laughs> um i have listened to everything um you know growing up my parents listened to country music um and then i went off to to school and i got into rock and roll well and then even early on i was i was big into hip-hop and, you know, I had turntables and early on I was driving around the country, you know, DJing um, from Atlanta, to New Orleans. I was DJing out in Vegas. Um, at one point I was DJing in like 15 clubs in Colorado. Um, and so and, and then with the DJing, um, you know, I was doing um, hip hop. Um, I got in the house and jungle, um, just a whole variety of, of stuff. And through the course of that, 
you begin to investigate the music. So as far as the samples or the bass lines or so you start tracing these these, you know, music lines back and searching for these different records that that basically, you know, that um, are inherent in what you're listening to because you want to find the foundation of the base of it, you know. So um, through the course of that, you know, I was investigating um, getting into the funk music, going back into the, you know, the doo-wop and the, and the Motown, um, and then going back into the early blues music. And, you know, and then at one point I was actually down in um, the uh, Arkansas Memphis area and I was working for um, the Department of Arkansas Heritage, and I actually got to work with uh, the King Biscuit Blues Festival. So I, I got to go in and um, really dig into a lot of old, obscure 45s in the blues genre. Um, and, you know, and I listened to, like, when I'm doing sketches, I listen to melodic, I listen to music scores, or I listen to classical music. Um, when I'm doing ink work, um, I'll generally listen to something that's kind of upbeat and funky. Um, and, and even now, you know, um, a lot of us, I, I really enjoy, um, it, I don't know if you've ever heard of Crisco, um, but it's like country disco. And I like that with like a really hot steel pedal guitar on it. Um, but then at the same time, I'm really into like Rastafari and like, gospel and and as far as reggae and roots and dub and i mean i just really get into like i mean and i think inherently as an artist um having all those sounds um available um it it kind of enhances the whole of life in regard to depending on how you want to it's it's a little um brave new world in the idea of like being able to um adjust your own um emotions based on what type of music you choose to put on you know so but yeah i'm a big music enthusiast so what are some of your favorite artists or bands you enjoy listening music from um my favorite you know probably one of my favorite all-time bands is leftover salmon and a lot of people probably don't know who they are um but they classify themselves as polyethnic Cajun slam grass. And as a youngster, um, I used to go and anytime they'd be playing a bar room, um, I would go and, you know, um, have a good time. And then when the show was over, I would go out and pop my art up and sell, you know, enough, enough, uh, art to get up gas money to roll to the next show, you know? And, uh, it's, uh, it's been been a long, long, strange trip to say the least. Yeah. So, what was your first ever concert you attended? Um, the first one that I remember going to, um, my dad took me to, and it was Conway Twitty and Elvira. Um, and uh, yeah, I saw a few country shows early on as a kid, you know. So now, what are what are your favorite foods to eat? Favorite foods, um, I really like um, Asian food. I like Middle Eastern food. Um, I like uh, Mexican South American food. Um, 
and that's another thing. I'm really into cuisine as far as uh, trying new things and, you know, uh, having experiences. And, and so one of the, probably one of the greater meals I've had in my life, right? Um, I was out in Colorado and a friend of mine, Elliot, he runs this restaurant. Well, he used to run it. He's got a new place now called Jungle in Boulder. Um, but he runs this place. He ran this place called Arcana. And um, I came into town and my friend Justin, um, he got me a, a ticket and we went down there and had dinner together. And they recreated um, the meal from President Grant's visit. Um, it was like a 10 course meal, you know, and we just went through all the different and it was like stuff, you know, from uh, from early Americana, you know, and um, then the very last thing um, was the the finishing drink was a Sizzerac and um, Elliot, the guy that runs the restaurant, um, we had actually been down in New Orleans a couple years before that. And we went to the Roosevelt Hotel down there, which is where they came up with the Sizzerac for President Roosevelt. And, uh, you know, we went down there and it's a big, they give you a big Sizzerac down there. And so we, you know, spent some time down, down in the basement of the Roosevelt drinking Sizzeracs. And, uh, when they brought out that final drink for the meal, Elliot came out to me and Justin, cause Justin was down in New Orleans with us too. And, um, Elliot was like, yeah, I put that on there, you know, just to remember our trip down to New Orleans. So that like, top the whole meal off you know so but yeah i'm really into food and i'm kind of a foodie and uh yeah it's uh you know i i hate to say i'm epicurean um because i don't think i go that far but i do enjoy food <laughs> so do you like to cook yes i love to cook so what do yeah. you what's your favorite meal to make for your family oh i make a lot of asian food i make german food i make a lot of mexican food um it's, I don't think there's really a favorite. It's just the, the variety is the spice of life, you know? What's your favorite German food to make then? Oh, sauerbraten. What is that? It's, it's uh, so you take a piece of beef and um, you slow cook it. It's like, it takes three days to make it. And then you thicken the, the gravy with like uh, graham crackers and um, it kind of, is just this uh, this really delicate and beautiful slow cooked beef in this gravy that you know that I love. So, <laughs> so now, uh, if what four superpowers would you want to have and why? Oh man, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I'd want that much responsibility. Um, one of the things I've always thought that I would want to do was to be able to kind of rewind and fast forward time freely, you know, just so I could go back and like experience something again, or, you know, um, maybe fast forward to, to get past something that I don't want to deal with. Um, yeah. As far as superpowers, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I never, never really wanted superpowers, man. You know, mm -hmm. Okay, so do you believe in ghosts? I believe I believe in several types of ghosts. Um, I believe that there are spirits with unfinished business that will hang around. Um, I believe that there are energetic imprints, almost where 
if like in and that gets into building the idea of egregores and kind of like these energies that are created whereas if a person does a certain thing so many times they can kind of create an energy around that that activity um, much like uh, Masonic temples constantly doing the same rituals or churches or, you know, temples in, in India um, constantly doing these same rituals, these yearly functions. Um, I believe that those can build sort of egregores or energies that are fed. Um, and um, then I also believe there are chaotic spirits um, that have essentially like, you know, died in extreme ways um, of violence and, and, you know, that, that basically are acting in ways that they're not even conscious of um, that are based around a state of energetic resonance from the way that they were, you know, killed. So, yeah, yeah. Have you ever experienced any paranormal events in your life? Yes. <laughs> um. I've seen a couple ghosts here and there. Um, had a really interesting run in with a witch in some rafters out in Colorado. Um, I have seen a ghost on the side of the road. Um, I've seen, I mean, and if paranormal stretches into UFOs, you know, um, sometimes people believe that there are actual creatures in the atmosphere, you know. Um, I think that there's a possibility I've seen a couple of, um, astral entities in the heavens. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I believe in a lot of the paranormal. Um, I think it, I think that what life is, is far more than what science can define. I mean, science is specifically designed to only work with the physical aspects of life. So beyond science, you know, metaphysics, um, whatever you want to call it. I, I do believe there is something. Now, who would it be if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive? Um, so any three people. Um, I would say Voltaire, um, Hieronymus Bosch, and maybe um, Adam, as far as Adam and Eve. <laughs> why those three people um well i could ask Ad adam about the supernal realm that he lived in as far as the higher levels of eternity that exists beyond this existence um hieronymus bosch i would just want to dig into his head as far as his esoteric philosophy and really what he was painting in regard to um, the imagery he put forth um, for the church and then um, voltaire is just Voltaire. I mean, he's, uh, he's, you know, um, the, probably the ultimate essence of the libertine philosophy, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So now what are some of your favorite book genres or authors you enjoy reading books from or listening to? Mm. I listen to a lot of, and read a lot of, um, ancient type texts is probably my favorite genre. Um, you know, and I'll go back and I mean, um, from the Hindu texts to the, um, you know, the Zoroastrian texts, um, to, 
uh, like Enoch and, and getting into the biblical texts, um, as well as getting into the uh, writings of, of um, the different um, Hebrew rabbis and a lot of the uh, non-canonical um, biblical type texts. Um, I, I think once you get to a certain point, um, a lot of the more modern texts um, are really interpretations of older texts and people putting their own spin on it. Um, and it's, it's just like the, the whole record game, you know, when I, as a big vinyl collector, you know, it's like going back and trying to find that original breakbeat or that original baseline or that original sample that was used. You know, um, I look at like the ancient esoteric texts in the same way, you know, kind of going back and really digging into those a lot. So speaking of time travel, if you had a time machine, what time period would you want to travel to and why? Hmm. Yeah, I've thought about that. Um, you know, sometimes I've said I would go back to like, you know, like some 66, 68 Grateful Dead shows, you know, just to just to go get my freak on. Um, but then in other ways, I would like to travel um, back and see like um, early America, you know, um, the West Coast and kind of like the old, uh, you know, just how the West was won and, and a lot of what was going on there. Um, going back into to the Victorian time. I mean, just I find every time period so um just uh, like so much to to take in and understand and um i mean i wouldn't mind going back to like ancient samaria you know or ancient babylon and kind of or ancient egypt and kind of seeing kind of some of the stuff that was going on there you know um it's it's such a vast question man it's it's hard to pick <laughs> so what hobbies do you enjoy doing when you're not being a dad and not doing artwork I read and, and research and um, kind of uh, compile that information. Um, I've been working on kind of a cohesive storyline of the cosmos um, for probably the past four or five years now, where I, I think once COVID hit, um, I took and redirected a lot of my energy into kind of that um, so as far as a hobby, that's probably the main thing I like to do, you know, and that that's resulted in the creation of the whole meta mind cast that I'm doing as well now, you know, what so, is that about if you can share that? Um, so most of the meta mind cast is basically, um, or I should say the real meta mind cast are the personal recordings that I've done that, that I'm interlacing in with the different interviews that I've, that I'm doing with people. Um, and cause initially I, you know, I thought about making an audio book or a book out of it. Um, and people were talking about pod, Oh, you should be on a podcast, do a podcast. And so, um, when I said that I'd finished the book, um, it was New York Patriot, um, from, uh, um, what is it there? Um, occult rejects. Um, he said, well, come on and talk about the book, you know, cause I, I said I'd finished my, cause I finished, uh, I wrote a book on Nimrod, the first skinwalker over COVID that I drew from all this research that I was doing on this timeline. Right. And so I went on and didn't like 
four interviews with him that ended up being like eight hours of material just on the book of Nimrod, the first skinwalker. And then other people started asking me to come on podcast. So I'm basically taking those interviews and I'll release a few of the interviews and then intermingled in with that are the personal recordings I've done that are kind of like this cohesive cosmic timeline that I'm putting together. So that's cool. Yeah. So now what, so now what are some things you've had to overcome in your life? Oh man, just, uh, I mean, with everybody, money's always an issue, you know, um, there's always the struggle of, um, being inspired enough and having the, the constant, um, get up and go to be able to be self-productive, you know, on a daily basis, um, some t- you know, I tell people sometimes I think about, about running away and joining the office, you know, and just uh, just because, you know, but but I've worked the office job and, you know, I did. I worked, uh, you know, uh, a couple corporate gigs and I worked for a museum um, doing um, designing exhibits. And, you know, it when you're dealing with boards and you're dealing with, you know, um, the the scheduling as far as having to be nine to five on a regular basis and that tying you down, um, I find really stifled, um, a lot of, of, you know, so, um, when I say that, I say that very jokingly because I know that, that the life I have right now, um, it's, you know, granted, you know, I, I'm running out of money here and there and always trying to, to, you know, poke the bear and make it do something, you know, but, but at the same time, um, I'm extremely satisfied. Um, I like what I do. Um, I enjoy having my time to myself. Um, it's, and, and then the way I have it set up diametrically now is I'm here in New Hampshire in the winters. So I'm kind of in the state of like hermetic solitude where I can focus and work and, you know, do as much art as I can. And then in the summers, um, we jump in the van and I go out and, and basically, you know, um, hustle my stuff. I'm, you know, a salesman on some level, um, having to show face, um, seeing people I work with, developing relationships, um, just being a social, social creature, you know, which I don't get at all during the winter. So. So now tell me about the three most influential people in your life and how they affected you positively or negatively. Hmm. Probably they're all women. Um, probably my mother, um, always being there, always, um, not necessarily giving me financial support, but giving me, um, mental support and, and, you know, being that, that framework, um, that I think is essential for a individual to be able to develop properly. Um, and the second most influential person would probably be my wife, um, who, like I said, keeps me grounded, um, keeps, keeps me, uh, on the straight and narrow a lot. Um, and then probably the third person, um, would be my daughter, um, and just, uh, coming to the point within my own life where I realize that there's something more important than myself. What is the biggest lesson you learned in your life so far? Oh man, big questions. The biggest lesson. Yeah. 
um, be true to yourself. Um, walk your own path. Um, love yourself for who you are. Um, try to not be too hard on yourself. Um, realize that we're all just taking baby steps and, and trying to, to create the world that we all envision for ourselves, you know, bring that beauty forth. Yeah. So how did you and your wife meet each other? Oh, so, you know, the, the inside family joke is that, you know, she always says that when she met me, I was in her sister's bed. You know, um, because she came home from thank for Thanksgiving and I was hanging out with her brother and um, he needed a ride home again. I was always driving people cross country that needed rides, you know, um, so I brought him for Thanksgiving and they put me in um, her bed. And when she went in to see her sister and she flipped on the light, I sat up, you know, so but we actually had met before that. Um, but neither one of us remembered it. We were at a festival called Memphis in May, and um, we were both there just hanging out with our friends. And in passing, we had met each other and not even remembered that we had met each other. So, yeah. So what is something you like about her? Uh, what is something I like about her? She's smart. Um, she's probably the smartest, most intellectual person I know. Um, she's not afraid to, um, give me shit or put me in my place or, um, you know, it, it, she's somebody that, that we can have open, um, you know, uh, conversations, um, about anything. Um, she lets me be myself. Um, I let her be herself. Um, it's, uh, she's just, uh, always been great, man. You know? Now, what's it like being a dad? Oh, it's, you know, um, I would say the one daughter that I have is probably the best thing I've ever created, you know, and, and getting to see her come up and getting to have those conversations, you know, as a child, um, about concepts larger than life and kind of, uh, being able to introduce her to the world, um, you know, basically the first year um, she was here, um, we kind of kept her at home and kind of just, you know, provided that security and that that comforting environment. Um, and then once she hit one, um, we took her out in the summers and started taking her all over the place. And um, by the time she was 11, she had hit all 50 states. And, um, you know, she's... Uh, She's a little independent, free spirit. Um, she's a good kid. So as a dad, what's your opinion on everything that's going on, going on surrounding kids and the whole agenda they're pushing on them? Yeah, and, you know, it's, you know, it's when you get into, oh, man, you know, you can talk about the commercial agenda and capitalism in regard to how everyone worships the dollar. Um, you can get into... Um, the projections of the military industrial complex through entities like Disney and the princess warrior phenomena. Um, you can get into, you know, coming, coming right up into, uh, you know, sexuality and the trans agenda. Um, it's, you know, from one side, you have the one side that says that they're propagating um, these ideas um, to manipulate and control people. 
Um, whereas on the other side of the argument, um, it's it's more the idea of um, normalizing the situations so that people are not, um, you know, um, discriminated against. So, you know, it's, it's like, uh, when you get into that whole argument, man, um, you know, you really have to consider both sides. Um, and, and I think it's something that we really need to talk about openly. Um, and, and neither side wants to hear what the other side has to say. Um, which is unfortunate um, because the truth always lies somewhere in the middle, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you've listened to the Metamind casts or any of my past interviews, you know, um, in, in ways um, like I almost worry that I was too overbearing as, as a father in regard to, talking openly about things but at the same time you know i think that we have to talk to the kids about this stuff um because everyone out there is trying to pinch you you know trying to take what's yours trying to hustle you into some you know it, it's so it's you know something that that you know the kids really need to be you know educated in regard to the ways of the world um, it's, it's, and, and raising a kid, you know, you almost have that time of innocence where they're, where they're in this buffered world where, you know, everything is beautiful and everything. And then when you get to the point where you introduce TV, you know, and, and the same thing with introducing the devices now, you know, um, it, it, you automatically go from, G rated material to, you know, almost PG 13. And like, it, you know, once you introduce your children to television, you know, the hypersexualization um, kind of rolls in. Um, you get all the commercial aspects of, you know, them, them proje being projected with, you know, all the different things that, that the corporations are wanting them to buy, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, and, and you got to figure a lot of uh, people that are raising kids are children themselves that were raised by children, you know? So, I mean, I, I waited until I was, uh, I think, 25 before we had her, you know? So I, I had a little bit of experience. Um, but, but, you know, in this day and age, there's just so much. It's like just uh, overflowing, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's hard with kids these days. Now, do you believe that the actions we do now will affect future kids down the line? Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's really why I have a lot of problems with uh, a lot of these corporate entities that are going around and, um, you know, bastardizing the commons and polluting our environment. And, you know, you look at this train derailment in Palestine, Ohio, you know, and they just they just took all those dioxins and set them on fire. You know, and then what does that do, you know, going into the atmosphere and soaking into the ground and all the fish? And, you know, these are things that, that our kids are going to all have to, along with the financial, you know, situation of them driving us continually further and further into this debt situation, you know. Um, it's, um, you know, the Native Americans have this idea of the seventh generation, 
um, where essentially when you're doing things and when you're looking at things and when you're making plans to do things, you say to yourself, how is this going to affect the future progeny or the future offspring of, of myself? Because those are still us, the continuing line of ourself, you know? So, um, I think a lot of what's been done in the name of money and power is just abominable, you know? So now what is something people seem to misunderstand about you? Hmm. The, well, you know, my wife says that I'm one of the most pessimistic and, um, like have a, a generally like dark outlook on the world. Right. And, I that may be what I talk about in a lot of ways, but internally I like see the beauty and and the timelessness of moments and like see um, the the greatness that could be achieved and overcome. Um, but at the same time, I think it's necessary to talk about um, you know perceived evils you know, um, in order to be able to facilitate doing good. So a lot of times, you know, people, and that's where it gets into the whole, you know, meta of the meta mindcast. It's meta in regard to ideas laying under ideas, laying under ideas. But the, as far as the way I named the meta mindcast, it's M-E-T-T-A, which is like the Buddhist idea of all-encompassing eternal love. So it's it's like a meta meta kind of thing, you know. What is the best what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Um sometimes the best move is no move. Will humans ever be able to work together to achieve a goal? I think um on smaller levels, I think it happens every day. Um, I think once um, any, like we were talking about the churches or the corporations, once anything gets to a certain point where the structure supersedes the, the people involved, um, then I think that's where you have your problem. So you don't, you don't believe that humans will be able to work together on a global scale? To, to be able to facilitate? Well, and I think that on some levels, it's only inherent in, in its happening. Um, but I think there's a lot of bodies left along the way. Mm -hmm. You know? So what do you think the world will look like in the next five years? Uh, well, hopefully we won't be on CBDC. You know, um, central bank digital currencies is something that, that in regard to panopticon philosophy, um, I feel is just a control mechanism. Um, you know, uh, as far as the next five years, you know, when I was younger and I was out protesting and, and doing all this, you know, stuff, um, it always seemed like the world was going to end tomorrow, you know, and, and there was, um, I was having a conversation with one of my daughter's friends at one point, you know, and she was like, you know, the the global warming and like the, the, you know, the earth's going to end. And I was like, well, first off, the earth is not going to end anytime soon. You know, maybe when the star gets big enough, you know, as far as uh, to gobble us up. Um, but I was like, you got to realize when I was a kid, 
you know, the rivers in the United States, some of them were on fire, like literally on fire, you know, because they were just dumping stuff into the into the rivers. You know, early on with Rockefeller, you know, um, Standard Oil, they were making that they were separating out the heavier stuff for the lamps to light the lights, right? And all that that lighter volatile stuff that we now call gasoline, um, Rockefeller was just dumping that in the river until he met Ford, you know, and figured out that they could take a byproduct and sell it back to us and not have to, you know, dispose of it. Um, so, um, it, it, you know, I think that things turn a lot slower than, than we perceive, um, I think the mind creates the immediacy. Um, and in ways they say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and, and I kind of have seen that um, in many ways. But, but I don't know how much is going to really change in the next five years. You know, it may be very much like it is right now. Mm-hmm. You know? So now questions to end the episode. What is giving you hope right now? Oh, what is giving me hope right now? The fresh air and the sunshine and seeing my daughter grow up and, you know, um, being able to constantly be making new art, um, going out and, and taking care of my chickens, um, you know, just the, the house cat running around, um, getting able to jump in the ride and cruise across country and go see a bunch of my friends and hang out and go eat some good food. And like life is good. It's, it's, you know, you have to in some way facilitate um, the energy to be able to make these things happen. Um, But, you know, it's uh, it just, I think, I think so much is hopeful and so much is beautiful and great. Um, And, and I think a lot of what really, um, aches within the minds of a lot of people is the uh the um simulation or the simulacra of the digital experience and how that creates a um hegelian dialect within the mind that's contrary to what reality actually is now what are three podcasts do you recommend to my listeners and why um let's see i would say um politically um i would say grand theft world um they they just do a really good job of talking about both sides doing um historic deep dives um let's see other podcasts i really like um i like uh aeon bites um with uh miguel um just as far as the esoteric and the occult um i uh let's see who else is really somebody that i'll throw on with regularity um yeah i mean i bounce around a lot i mean i listen to you i listen to the occult rejects i listen to subconscious realms i listen to no agenda i listen to the amish inquisition i listen to like just the whole plethora you know it's really kind of hard to decide you know but those those two um uh you know especially politically grand theft world um you know but yeah a podcast is hard to decide man there's just so much so much good stuff out there that's true so now if you were given five minutes to speak with the world what would you want to tell them oh 
Yeah, that's a big responsibility. Um, five minutes is not very long to say anything. Um, maybe in five minutes, you know, I could introduce myself and maybe we could talk about our kids for a second and maybe have a little smile and maybe laugh a couple times. And um, that probably would be the best thing that, that any of us could do, um, you know, um, as far, but as far as the world itself, um, slow down, um, be nice, um, be more self-reflective, um, you know, try to help out when you can, um, try to see the beauty in things, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Lastly, where can people find you online? Um, if you Google R marks m-a-r-x artist um i'm out there i'm on instagram as robbie r-o-b-b-y marks um i'm on twitter as marks robbie um i'm on facebook um i'm on discord um and then also if you just search meta m-e-t-t-a mind cast um all one word um i'm on all the pod servers and you can hear some of the other interviews i've done as well as some of my own personal recordings and you guys can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at Hawkett Podcast, which is on the screen, as well as YouTube and Rumble. That's it for me. Thank you so much, Robbie, for coming on the show today. For sure. Fun.